It's the Grim Tidings Podcast interview with Rebecca Lukash, assistant editor at Harper Voyager Publishing. Well, not only do we talk with some of our favorite authors here on the Grim Tidings Podcast, but we also chat with industry professionals who work behind the scenes to bring our favorite books from manuscript to market. We like to dive into what these folks do on a day-to-day basis, how they do what they do, and pick their brains for useful nuggets of wisdom to inform and entertain our listeners. Today's guest knew she was destined for a future in the publishing industry early in life, as one of her preschool hobbies was literally binding hundreds of blank pages into books, but never actually got around to writing anything down. Apparently not fated for literary greatness, she decided to help other authors achieve their own dreams. During college, she interned for the fabulous Da Books, as well as HarperCollins with the Voyager and Morrow imprints. Upon graduation from Cornell University with a degree in medieval studies, she got a full-time gig with HarperCollins, working as an assistant editor for the Voyager and Avon imprints. Her favorite books include Squire by Tamara Pierce. The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, and her newest favorite, Catherine Addison's The Goblin Emperor. Joining us today on Skype for her first ever podcast interview, the Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Rebecca Lukash to the show. Rebecca, thank you for hanging out. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you are in uh, New York City. Yes. Okay. And you work on, what was it, the 29th floor or? Oh, the 23rd floor. Um, we're right down in the financial district, actually. All right. So you are the assistant editor uh, currently with uh, Harper Voyager, the science fiction and fantasy imprint of Harper Collins, Big Five publisher, big deal. You're a big deal, Rebecca Lukash. That's why you're on the show today. So tell us maybe uh, what you do on a day-to-day basis as an assistant editor with Harper Voyager. Yeah, well, I guess I would say there are kind of two parts to my job, and the title kind of breaks it down nicely. There's the assistant part and the editor part. So on a day-to-day basis, I usually come in and do um, before I have my caffeine, which is not always the best idea, about an hour of email, um, just kind of addressing little things that have popped up overnight. Um, because I do a lot of coordinating between authors and agents and the two executive editors who I assist. So, you know, any little issues that have popped up overnight or, um, you know, something has come in that needs to be sent back out, kind of handle that right away when I sit down. And then the rest of the day, One of the good things about being an assistant editor is that every day is super different, Um, always working on something new, something exciting. So I kind of do my assistant duties in between the stuff that is a little bit more fun um, on the editorial side. So on the assistant side, I'm doing things like sending out copy edited manuscripts, asking for author photos, checking to see where things are, following up with people for stuff that's late. Um, And then on the editor side, I have my own list of books and authors that I've acquired um, that I manage. And those are the books that I'm taking from acquisition through publication. So I'm reading submissions and I'm doing uh, edits, sending out editorial letters, that kind of thing. So do you you have a specific stable of authors you work with on a day-to-day basis, or does it change depending on who uh, who needs the most attention at the moment or who has a book release or whatever the case may be? Yeah, it kind of depends on uh, who's who's got something coming up. Um, most of my focus is on you know authors who either have something that's coming out right then or authors who've turned in a manuscript that I'm editing. So it's kind of funny because there will be kind of a lull. Like if, if an author has turned in a book and it's come out and I'm waiting for their next book, there's sort of a lull in the communication period between them and me, which kind of makes it nice when they come back with their next manuscript. Oh, no, we haven't talked in a while, so you can catch up. And what genres do you specialize in, Rebecca? Uh, I specialize in science fiction and fantasy, probably a little bit more heavily on the fantasy side. And I do also dabble a bit in contemporary romance. Cool, cool. And then 
How many manuscripts are you working through at present? Oh boy, uh, the last count, and it's it's a little bit higher than average for me right now because I do try to schedule our books strategically. And one of the things that I always keep an eye out for are when the conventions are. And because convention season is kind of gearing up now, between February and the end of April, I had probably like 11 manuscripts that I needed to work through. And that, that's a bit heavier than, than normal. Normally, we try to do maybe like three manuscripts in a month. But I thought, you know, for these authors, it was, it was worth it to try and pack it in a little bit more and make sure that we could, you know, pick, pick the best publishing dates for all of them. So for anybody that's not familiar with editorial terms, uh, there's like a line editor, there's a copy editor, ep- editor, there's a acquisitions editor, there's like several hundred different versions of editors. <laughs> you do all of those things or is there a specific uh, thing you focus on the most? Um, well, I don't do the copy editing, which is really good for my authors because copy editors go in and they do the really nitpicky things like looking at continuity. Like if somebody has, my classic example, if somebody's holding a coffee cup in their left hand, does it show up in their right hand? Or are you using a brand name? Like uh, Styrofoam, for instance, is very adamant that they do not make cups. So all of those cups that we all call styrofoam cups are actually foam cups, not styrofoam. Um, so the copy editors will go through stuff like that. They'll make sure that you're not using an N dash where you should be using an M dash. Uh, and that's stuff that I just don't have the focus for. I just can't do it. So when I edit, I'm mostly doing line edits and kind of big picture edits. Um, so when I get a manuscript, I'll go in. And I always try to do the big picture edits first because I think, um, you know, that's the time when you can really start developing the editor-author relationship. Because um, you have to kind of, like, suss each other out and see, you know, how much, how much give and take there's going to be... Um, and then how that relationship is going to work. Um, I usually can't help myself, and I do line edits at the same time, but I try not to go too crazy because nobody wants to get their precious baby back, like totally covered in track changes. It's traumatic. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so usually I do go through and I do do bigger bigger changes and, and line edits and then leave the kind of nitpicky stuff for the copy editor. And do you acquire these manuscripts via an agent and you, you, you're you the one who actually decides, okay, this is the, a manuscript that I want to bring on board for Harper Voyager and, and release it? Are you the one that makes that decision? or? Yeah. Um, so agents will send me the manuscripts and they're, they're great about knowing kind of what each editor is looking for so they're not sending you anything that's totally not for you. And then, you know, I'll read it. And one of the good things about Voyager, and I think, I think all companies do this, is that we do really present books to the of the team before we've acquired them because I think it's so important that publicity and marketing be excited about the book too so we'll get what are called second reads and that's when we share the book with some colleagues in editorial we share it with publicity we share it with marketing sometimes I think even the sales team will read some of the submissions just to make sure a that like you're not totally crazy this is something that other people think is good too because we all have like weird passion projects with other people are like I, I don't know what you're what you're seeing here you know um, <laughs> mind-bending aliens are, are not in right now and you're like all right fine. <laughs> so so yeah so once you kind of get those second reads from the team that's when you can go back to the agent usually you want to have a conversation with the author first to make sure that you know it's somebody that you're gonna work well together with and that's when you take the next steps towards that 
acquisition. And one of the agents that you work with is past guest Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media. Yes, yes, he's great. He's a classy fellow. <laughs> Enjoy Mark. Boy, he's going to be back on the show in a, in a few months, too. We're going to update listeners on what's going on with Mark as well. So, um, But you work with uh, numerous agents then, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. You guys usually have like power lunches and stuff like that over Caesar salads and lemon wedge ice water and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm so glad you say that because, you know, the stereotype, I've, I've read submissions where people write about what they think editors do. And they think that we're all these, like, 50-year-old men and we go out and we drink <laughs> martinis and we come back totally sloshed. I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what our lunches are like. We're just like a bunch of nerdy people and we get together and we like to talk books and that's what we do over water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just drinking water and... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no hard drinks involved. Ever. Not for me, because normally, you know, at the end of the day, you have to, or at, after your lunch, you have to go back and and read. Um, so if you've had a martini, that's not exactly the best for reading manuscripts. Not everybody likes drunk reading, Phil. <laughs> well, that's one of my hobbies. So, <laughs> so you you mentioned before that mind bending aliens aren't, you know, maybe not trendy at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is that something that weighs heavily on? publishing company's mind is like what is selling at the moment so for example if there's a genre that was maybe hot for a little while and then kind of cooled off is that something that people are thinking about constantly and trying to find the next big subgenre, the the next steampunk or the next uh new weird new weird or whatever the case may be or grim dark as our uh, <laughs> as our podcast focuses on yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we're all looking, and, and it's it's like you said, it's not only what's the big thing now, but what the next big thing is going to be. Um, I know when I was interning, uh, vampires were on their way out, and zombies were on their way in, and it was the worst time for me, because those are two of the things that I do not like to read. Um, <laughs> but that was that was what we were getting in. And it, it is interesting, too, to see that the submissions tend to come in waves. And, and I don't know if that's a function of what's being turned into the agents or, or what agents are thinking is going to be, you know, the next big thing on their end. But right now, for instance, I've been seeing a lot of science fantasy, which I think is kind of neat because with Star Wars coming out, everybody was predicting that, uh, you know, military space opera was going to be really big and, and space adventures were going to be in. And it's kind of funny to see that, like, maybe that's spilling over onto the fantasy side, too. Is there any other genre that publishers are kind of hanging their hat on right now? Like, this is going to be the next big thing, you know, pirate, necromancer, <laughs> <laughs> uh, centaurs or whatever? <laughs> yeah, I think I think not so much right now. I know at Voyager, we're, we're kind of keeping our eyes open just for books that are good, which seems obvious. But at the same time, I think sometimes, you know, we do get caught up in these trends and, you know, zombies are big and we all want like the next zombie novel, but like it has to be good too. Um, and I, I think that's the thing that we're looking at first and foremost is, is this well-written? Is this a good, compelling story? And then after that, we can kind of worry about, all right, like, where are we going to fit this into the market? Are, are we going to find a good audience for this? That's interesting because I was going to ask if if there's ever a case where someone's a really good writer, but for whatever reason you don't think you can market it, where on the other end you may have a writer that has really good name recognition, but maybe there's an aspect of the writing that doesn't click or whatever the case may be. Would that ever happen where a publisher would pick up a person that already has that brand or that name recognition over a new writer that maybe has something really cool, but the publisher thinks they can't market it for whatever reason. 
Yeah, I can't think of of a time where where somebody who's who's big who's has been picked up, but the the story wasn't good. I mean, I think a lot of the times the big names are are big because of you know the quality of their writing. But yeah. you know, I I think one of the things that we're doing as the publisher is looking for potential. Um, and if you can take somebody who's new, who's really talented, who you think you can grow, I think that's always better than taking on somebody who's really big and established but has written something you know just not of quality. Because readers are smart and they're going to figure it out. You know, if you have a really big name book and it's out there and it sucks, like you'll probably sell a lot of copies at first, but it'll it'll die off pretty quickly. Um, whereas if you have somebody who's newer, you might get a kind of slower burn as as their audience builds. That's kind of my dream to one day write a really big book that sucks, and then <laughs> and then everybody can say how shitty it is, and then I can go, well, you know, I made it finally. Everybody hates me. <laughs> So you mentioned um, having an eye for new talent, and I think one of the imprints that you have, which is Harper Voyager Impulse, is kind of geared towards picking up and acquiring that new talent. That's the ebook only digital publishing wing of Harper Voyager. Now, you had an open submissions process for that, didn't you? Yeah, that was, I think, the first open call uh, opened in 2012, and then Voyager Impulse launched 2014. Um, and we actually have another open call that we ran um, this past fall, and we are, for everybody who's listening who submitted, we are working diligently to get back to everybody on it. Um, but we are a small team, so it will take a little while. But yeah, one of the great things about Voyager Impulse is that we can take a chance on debut authors because we think, you know, it's it's got a good speed to market, um, where a print book takes probably like nine months to produce, where it's closer to five months on the impulse side. Um, so you can be a lot more on trend. And I also think, and, and the kind of philosophy behind impulse is that some of the digital readers are more willing to take a chance on new authors or on kind of like weird genres. You know, I, I don't know if that's a function purely of the price point that we sell them at or if it's something different about people who tend to be on e-readers and tablets versus print books. But but yeah, it's it's been really great. And I think the open submission calls are really fun. Um, it's actually kind of the way I got my start in, in acquiring. And it's nice because it's, you know, some people who either haven't had time to look for an agent or haven't had success looking for an agent, but who we see potential in. Um, and you can kind of welcome them into the fold. And we have these great seminars. They're called Authority and Digital Dish. And they're kind of in-house seminars that publicity runs, it, it kind of gives these newer authors tips and tricks for growing their platform, growing their social media, growing their audience. And so you can get people who, like we said, aren't like the biggest authors, but who we think really have potential. And you can start building them that fan base to, to continue to grow them. Is there anybody you could you could name drop right now that you think is uh, that's been acquired and isn't a household name yet, but you see being like the next big writer in fantasy or sci-fi? Yeah, well, on the Impulse side, we are really excited about uh, Laura Bickle, who I work with. Her first two books came out, they're Dark Alchemy and Mercury Retrograde, and she writes these really interesting, they're not exactly Weird West because they're contemporary fantasy, but they're set in Yellowstone with this great character who's a geologist, um, and she's out in this kind of like dying gold rush town with her coyote sidekick. Um, and it's, it's a little bit like monster of the week, but it's just, it's just really fun. The writing is beautiful. And, and she's somebody that we're really excited about over at Impulse. You mentioned marketing and promotion too. And that is one topic I think we talk about with pretty much every author that comes on the show is their strategies towards, um, cutting above the uh, signal to noise ratio and getting their name out there in front of readers. 
And definitely these days, I think a little more is expected of authors as far as engaging with things like Twitter and Facebook and social media and getting their name out there. How do you think promotion factors into an author and how much usually rests on their shoulders as far as engaging uh, new readers? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's one of the things that, that I found kind of fascinating when I started working in publishing, because when I came in, I really thought you know, we acquire the book and we get it out there and then that the author can just kind of like rest on their laurels and, and their work is done. But it really isn't like that. And I think especially with how important social media is these days, the author's online presence and how active they are on social media is really important. So I think, you know, growing grew Twitter, it's, it's that fan interaction. And not only are you interacting with fans on social media, but you're also interacting with other authors. So you're building your author network um, in a way where I think maybe you had to go to book signings or conventions before to meet other authors. Now you can meet them, you know, anywhere on the internet. And that that author network can be, can be really important. So I think, you know, the more authors can do on their end to support what we're doing, the better it is for them. But just because there is, like you said, so much noise out there that, you know, the more people you have advocating for the authors, even if the authors themselves, I think the better. Does there usually require a little bit of like training or grooming as far as steering authors towards being successful in promoting themselves? Yeah, I think so. Um, that's something, you know, someone in publicity could probably speak to more than I could. But just from my conversations okay. with publicity, it, it definitely sounds like there are, there are some like do's and don'ts on social media and uh, like there's, there's a very fine balance because you want to be tweeting about yourself and, and promoting yourself and saying, hey, my book is on sale. But you also don't want to be annoying and spammy. I have no idea what the line is between that, but there are definitely experts <laughs> out there who do. Well, I can tell you, I certainly don't know. And I know a lot of people <laughs> that don't know. And it's one of those uh, we've talked about Twitter on the show before as being like this secret cult or whatever, where only <laughs> only they know the rules <laughs> that, that work and don't work. And uh, I haven't figured out Twitter. I'm more of a Facebook person. Is there any kind of like what the publisher says, you have to get a Facebook page if you don't have a Facebook author page or you have to start blogging or any of these kind of things or the, the writers kind of left to their own devices, like what what methods they want to use to promote themselves? marketing has been talking recently about Facebook being really important. Um, but I think the other thing that they've always emphasized um, that, that we should tell our authors is that it's kind of whatever social media platform they're most comfortable on. You know, if you have an author who's no good at taking pictures, you don't want them on Instagram. They're not going to like Instagram. It's not going to do anything good for them. So I, I think everybody has to find the right balance of what social media is right for them. Yeah, I, have, I don't know Instagram that uh, Rob likes Instagram, but um, I don't like taking pictures of myself. Um, and when I when I do take selfies, I feel really dirty or something. I don't, <laughs> it feels wrong. Uh, could you tell us some books that kind of got you into fantasy or sci-fi to start off with? I mean, when I was a kid, I wouldn't say that I was like the most widely read child. Um, I kind of found my favorite books and stuck with them uh, until they fell apart. Uh, for instance, I have a copy of Harry Potter that I think is in like 10 pieces scattered around the house somewhere. But I, like you guys mentioned at, at the opening, Tamara Pierce was the, the author who really got me into science fiction and fantasy. Um, and what I loved about her books was just like the amount of sheer girl power that goes on. The idea to me that, you know, a woman could become a knight in this medieval fantasy world was great because I was never interested in, you know, being a pretty princess when I was little. So, you know, women who are going out and kicking butt was exactly what I wanted in my stories. 
and you know, as I've gotten older, I've definitely tried to expand what I've been reading because I never I didn't read a ton of science fiction, but I recently read Lock In by John Scalzi, and that really turned me kind of back onto science fiction because it was such an interesting concept. You know, it was kind of like law and order, except for some people have robot bodies, but it felt very plausible. That was really enjoyable to me. And I started kind of broadening my reading back out a little bit more. Do you kind of keep tabs on what other science fiction fantasy publishers are, are, are putting out to see kind of what the competition has in store for you guys? Yeah, we definitely try to keep tabs because I think it's a good way to keep on top of trends and, and you know, what other people think is trending. Um, we actually have been doing these kind of year-end meetings at Voyager where we look at the books that are, you know, the top sellers for the year in science fiction and fantasy. And we look at the books that are kind of common across all those like best of 2015 looking forward to in 2016 list. I think that's been a really interesting way to see, you know, kind of what's trending, but also what's selling, because they don't always match up. Well, well trending and selling do, but, but best of lists and what's selling don't always match up. Is it a case of where sequels are often the most looked forward to rather than like some brand new uh, series? Uh, I know fantasy and sci-fi tend to be more of series heavy kind of genres. So is that often what uh, if, a, if a book does really well, is there always that thinking like, oh, we can make a new series or? Yeah, well, I actually thought it was really funny to see. Um, I guess the, the year before this, when I when I did this kind of, well, I, don't, I hesitate to call it a study because it's a very small sample pool. But uh, it was interesting to see, you know, everybody was really looking forward to series titles. And then this year, everyone was still looking forward to series title, but they started adding in these books that haven't even got publication dates yet. So they were adding in, like, the next Patrick Rothfuss. They were adding in the next George R.R. Martin. And, uh, you know, at first I was like, oh, that's so great. Like, 2016 is going to be amazing. And then I looked it up, and I was like, wait, none of these books are actually coming out. <laughs> so I think, you know, <laughs> you have to take those lists with a grain of salt. Uh, we discussed with one author, too, um, the influence of critical acclaim for a novel versus successful sales. Mm -hmm. For example, there's one book that came out that didn't sell as well, but seemed to get critical acclaim kind of across the board. This book kind of kept showing up and people routinely said good things about it. However, it doesn't sell that well. Mm -hmm. How much does kind of critical acclaim and positive response from blogs and bloggers and websites and things like that factor into continuing on with a book or a title or success for an author? I think it's a complicated issue because I, I do think critical acclaim is really important. And if people are reading the book and they're liking it, you know, that's a really positive thing. And it's a great plus for the book, especially if you're looking at, um, you know, option material or, or what you're going to be doing with the next books in the series that you have under contract. But at the same time, I think it's, you know, from, from a business standpoint, you're also looking at the number of sales and, and they kind of have to balance. Um, and I couldn't give you like a, a magic number for, for how that would work. But, you know, that has to balance. And then, you know, you're also looking at ideas for the next books and how you're going to grow you know, how you're going to grow that author's career. So it's, it's, there are a lot of factors coming into play more than just critical acclaim, which is a tough thing to say because, you know, there are a lot of great books out there that, that don't sell all that well. And so I think you have to kind of consider everything when you're looking at, at next books and how you're going to continue. I guess in some cases it's a supply and demand kind of thing. Like if uh, people are really into vampires for whatever reason at the moment, then the publisher has to sort of supply that or they're going to be left behind in some capacity. The, the, the current thing now that's being talked about a lot is 
diversity in science fiction and fantasy and how uh, people want to see people from different backgrounds and different uh, gender identities and such being featured in fantasy and sci-fi stories. Uh, how does the publishing industry look at that from like a demand point of view where a lot of people are demanding this thing and maybe there's there's not enough supply on that end? Yeah, I think that it's something that publishing has really jumped on since it came to light. And I, it, you know, I hesitate to even say that because it, it should be something that should always be at the forefront of our minds when we're acquiring books. You know, we mm-hmm. should always be looking for diverse voices and diverse characters. But I, I do think that the response has been overwhelmingly positive, which is really good. I think it's something that's coming up a lot more in conversations amongst people in the industry. It's something that authors are talking a lot about more. It's something that readers are talking about. And I, I think that that is really good. And it's something that I'm really hopeful is going to continue, you know, as, you know, the, the gears grind and, and publishing kind of catches up to the times. There is a case of on writers' forums and such where I've seen people people want to write these kind of characters and they want more diversity in their own fiction. But then when they write these characters, they often get feedback that they're representing the characters wrong or, or they offend somebody. Uh, how, how do you how do you avoid that? And as an editor, how do you help people kind of say, well, look, this isn't really a good representation of this kind of person, or maybe you need to rethink this character, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you know, I know that J.K. Rowling just ran into a lot of trouble with this, um, with mm-hmm. her story on on Pottermore, and I think that that issue in particular it, it highlights what people are saying about this, which is that she didn't do. Her research, and that seems to be the issue. You know, she kind of made these like blanket statements about groups of people, but she didn't really delve into the you know nitty gritty. And I understand that she was writing a short story, but I, I think that the same kind of idea applies to anybody who's writing, which is that you really need, if you want to write, you know, characters who come from a different background than you do, who have a different worldview, you need to really think it through and and do your research. You know, um, trust your gut, trust what your editor says, your beta readers, your friends. Um, but but more importantly than that, you should be listening to what people are saying. I think if you just Google even just how to write diverse characters. There are so many great resources out there. Um, I think it was Daniel Jose Older wrote a piece just recently on on you know how to do a diverse character that I thought was really interesting. And one of the pieces that I actually found really interesting, I found um, just kind of like poking around on the internet on, on John Scalzi's blog, he was talking about a time where he, I guess, injured his leg. And so he had to go through the airport in a wheelchair. And then it was just temporary. It was because he couldn't walk you know quite that far. And he was talking about how how different it was to be in a wheelchair that people kind of ignored him or people even moved him out of the way. He was like in their way of getting their luggage. But not only that, I kept scrolling down and I started reading the comments of the people who wrote back to him. And it was people who, you know, were permanently in wheelchairs and they were saying things like how frustrating and frightening it was if somebody was smoking a cigarette and the cigarette is, you know, a flaming stick at level with your eyes when you're in a wheelchair. And that kind of highlighted for me just how just from talking to other people People who have these different backgrounds, you can really learn so much. But that was something that I had never thought of before. But you know, if you wanted to write 
a character like that, that's a detail that could make or break your story because it, it gives it that ring of authenticity. So all of that is just a really long-winded way of saying that I think <laughs> I think if you if you do your research and you talk to people, you know, everybody is gonna make a misstep now and then with diversity. But if you really tried, I think it shows. Well it's also one of those things that I think this is something I've just noticed from people who write the more epic style fantasy. Their feeling is that in a fantasy world, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And then there's some people that say, well, you can't put Asian characters in, in a medieval Iceland. It doesn't make sense. But you can do that if you want, if it's a fantasy world. There's a lot of this confusion over authenticity. Like, okay, do I am I authentic to history or am I authentic to the current times? There seems to be a bit of confusion when, when it comes to that. I think with contemporary fantasy or urban fantasy, it's it's easier to represent characters the right way because you're dealing with modern times usually. But when you're when you're dealing with epic fantasy where it's uh, like a second world, like a like a Middle Earth where it's not Earth, how do you deal with those kind of issues that don't exist in that world? Well, I think that's an interesting thing. And I think that that's something that you can really work on um, when you have an editor. And, and that that's one of the things that I think is important to be open to. You know, if your editor highlights something and it's like, I think that maybe you've described this character insensitively, you know, you need to be open to having that conversation because, you know, your, your editor isn't going to point it and be like, you sound like a racist. They're going to point it out and be like, I don't think that this is coming across the way that you intended it to. And I always do try to look for that balance, um, you know, in, in epic fantasy and, and in other genres to make sure that you're balancing the times. And I actually think that that's something that I can pull a lot from the romance industry in because they've really evolved with the times to be writing now historical novels that have modern sensibilities. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way your characters look at the world and the way your characters are looking at you know, gender equality and, and racial equality. And, you know, if your characters aren't totally backwards, I think that can definitely help. But but yeah, I, I really do agree with you on, on the idea that, you know, if you have a fantasy world, why infuse it with some of the issues that, that we have in ours? You know, if you can have dragons, you can have women being equal to men. Yeah, that's definitely something that I've thought about a lot is, uh, you know, the, the series that I write, the main character is a female monster hunter and, and she's an elf also. So people may say, well, that character is not realistic because, you know, elves are typically not uh, that strong or whatever the case may be. But that's what I've chosen to write. And I have a lot of stuff in my stories that maybe some people would say, well, that doesn't make sense. And I use a lot of modern language and that that's that tends to be a thing that people may not like. So I, I guess there's a lot of this kind of overlap. What should you do and what should you not do when it comes to trying to write characters that you may not normally write? And that's where I think, you know, having that outside perspective from beta readers and your editor can really come into play because they're all going to be looking at it for what works for your story. Like I think what you said about you know, saying that maybe like a female elf is not as strong, uh, you know, typically as she would be in your world. That's something where, you know, people are expecting one thing, but if it if it's kind of genuine to the world that you've built, I think that's the most important thing. When you're going through manuscripts and things like that, does, does diversity kind of pop up in the back of your mind as to looking at this manuscript and making sure it's diverse as it could be? Or is that usually a, a factor into when you're going through the manuscript? Yeah, it definitely is. I know for me, one of the first things that stands out is usually the gender dynamics, you know, because I am a girl. 
Um, that's something that I, I tend to look for um, because I do think that sometimes fantasy and, and science fiction fall back into you know and the issue the issue they have on TV too that there's one female characters and she's and she's the love interest and you know that that's kind of it um, and so that's something that I I do keep an eye out for and uh, I know when I'm editing too sometimes I'll see somebody will have a minor character um, one of my authors had a tattoo artist and I was like you know this character only shows up for one page. This could be a great opportunity to add in, you know, another female character because all of your secondary characters right now are men. And and so I, I do definitely think that we keep an eye out for diversity and, and um, you know, all of that stuff because it just kind of boils down to when you're looking for, is this a good book? And I think that diversity and, and diverse characters and diverse voices is such a big part of that that it's something that you're always looking at when you're reading submissions. And one thing I'm curious about as far as um, genre is grimdark. Since our show is Grim Tidings podcast, uh, we kind of have to ask this kind of required in our contract that we've signed with whoever we <laughs> whoever we signed it with that we have to ask people about this. But uh, how does the pub- publishing industry feel about that term grimdark when it comes to like the more uh, morally gray, uh, darker kind of uh, fantasy that that's kind of in the tradition of sword and sorcery. How how does the publishing industry tend to feel about that? These kind of subgenres that are basically reinventions of old genres. Well, we at Voyager definitely love our grimdark. Uh, we actually have a book coming out this summer by Rachel Dunn called "In the Shadow of the Gods" uh, that I would describe as grimdark. Uh, it's light on the scale of grimdark because it's one of mine. I tend to go for the lighter stuff, but it's definitely dark, and you have the the great hallmarks of grimdark fantasy, which is you know that everybody is morally ambiguous and and nobody is purely good or purely bad. But we we were talking about this the other day, actually. It came up in one of our meetings, and I am kind of thinking right now that grimdark is a tough term, not because you know of any of any genre trends in the industry, but because I think grimdark has almost gone the way of the word or like the genre urban fantasy where it's become kind of a small box and so when you say grimdark i think people expect you know like (laughs) very grim and very dark kind of like when you say urban fantasy i think people think you know vampires and elves in the city kind of like pi so i I think sometimes it can be tough to say something is grimdark because it just sort of narrows it in a way that you don't want to be narrowed you know, you want to say that like, dark fantasy, I think, encompasses grimdark and a whole bunch of other things. And in a certain regard, I almost think that that's it's, it's an easier way to find your market because you're going to be pulling in the grimdark audience, but you're also going to be pulling in some people who might see grimdark and go like, I don't know if I can take like that level of blood and guts. We can withstand a pretty high tolerance of blood and guts ourselves, but <laughs> we understand other people <laughs> may not. I've always kind of used the term dark fantasy to describe the kind of stuff I liked. Um, but that has a whole different meaning, doesn't it? Doesn't that mean more like horror fantasy in a way? I think, I mean, when I use dark fantasy, I use it to just describe things that don't necessarily have like a wonderful, happy ending. I think that horror and dark fantasy are separate. I think of horror as being more like shock and awe gruesome, whereas I think that dark fantasy can encompass anything from, from you know, like the Laura Bickle contemporary fantasies that I was telling you about to something like the Rachel Dunn, which is grimdark. Yeah, I'm always kind of confused about when these genres, these new genres pop up and everybody's kind of trying to define what it is. Mm-hmm. We've we've kind of had this discussion on the show before about, uh, you know, do you consider yourself a grimdark author? And people say, well, no, not really. I don't really know what the hell it is. And then 
And then we go, well, it's this. And then they're like, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm that. I don't know. Yeah, I think one of the things that's important for us on the publishing side, more than just saying, you know, what genre it is, because you could easily give a whole bunch of different genres, you know, like we have bisect codes and, uh, you know, each book gets three bisect codes or five by, you know, however many bisect codes you can give it to categorize it. And I think to a certain extent, when you're describing a book to fans or to other people in the company, you can say, you know, it's contemporary fantasy with dark fantasy elements and it would be urban fantasy except for it's set in Wyoming. And so you can kind of do that with your genres in a way that is is so broad. But then when you go to comp titles, you know, saying that it's like a certain author's book or a certain series, that's what kind of helps people narrow it down because that's more familiar and concrete. So if you had a urban fantasy in Wyoming, what what would that be called? A plains fantasy? <laughs> I don't know um, what's in what's in Wyoming. Sorry. I always jokingly call it rural fantasy, but that's not a yeah. BISAC code yet, so I don't know if that's gonna stick. All right, everybody, right? You the rural fantasy. We get this get this trend going. <laughs> uh, where where cows and farmers I would farmers read about fighting where cows. <laughs> Necromancer farmers, right? Yeah. Nice. Resurrecting Werecal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, Rebecca, we definitely um, have aspiring authors that listen to the show, but we do have aspiring editors, I think, that listen to the show as well. Um, you, you've found yourself with a Big Five publisher. Um, maybe paint a path for us, kind of how you got your position with the company and maybe what tips you might have for aspiring editors who maybe want to get into the industry? What what sort of path would you put them on? Well, for me, I think it was important that I had those internships during college. You know, one of the things we always tell the interns at HarperCollins is to make sure that you keep in touch with the people that you worked with, keep in touch with the editors, keep in touch with HR. Um, because actually, when I first came back to New York, I was working as a paralegal. And I pretty quickly realized that that was not going to work out. But it was great because it put me in New York City. So I was kind of ready to pounce on a job opening in publishing when it came up. But it was it was really important for me to keep in touch with the editors that I'd worked with during my internship, because that was actually Actually, one of those editors was was the person for whom the opening came up was to work as her assistant. And so that was kind of how, you know, I had heard about it and I was in touch with HR and all of that. But, you know, I, I understand like internships are not feasible for everybody. They're not, you know, the most fabulous paying things. And, you know, they're really competitive. It can be hard to get them. So I think one of the things that's important is to be really on top of your trends, you know, make sure that you're reading really widely, make sure that you know kind of what's going on in the industry so that when you, you know, when you apply to these jobs, you sound knowledgeable, you're well-read, you're somebody who's really going to be valuable. Because a lot of what you do, um, particularly as an editorial assistant, is you're looking at manuscripts and you're really helping out a more senior editor. So if you can show that you kind of have started to acquire that base knowledge on your own, I think that that can be really important. And, you know, beyond that uh, informational interviews are always good. I don't know, you know, editors will always respond if you reach out to them and, and want to talk to them. And in that regard, it's really important to make sure that you have really good questions. I've definitely done informational interviews with people where they, they didn't really have any questions. They were kind of just fishing for a job. And I would say if you if you come in and you have really smart questions about even if you already know, if you've talked to like a thousand people and you already know what an editorial assistant does or an assistant editor does. You know, bring up questions about the, the genres, bring up questions about the industry, about trends, about books that we've read. You know, be, be able to have a really smart conversation about books. And I, I think that will get you a long way. Unlike the Grim Tidings podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I used just to, kidding. I used to be um, I used to be really interested in working in a publishing company, and then I always always had this horrible image of me flying to New York City, and I'm from Mississippi originally, and just being like laughed at. Oh, ha, ha, you little Mississippi boy, you're in over your head in big big old New York City. It sounds like a sounds like a bad movie, but. Um, <laughs> For people who aren't as acclimated to like big city life, are there are there ways you can work in the publishing industry, like for a big publisher, without moving into a situation that might just be too overwhelming for somebody? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are definitely. Um, I mean, I think I think most of the big publishers are in New York City. With technology, I would say that we could probably start expanding out, but we, you know, haven't yet. We're still all kind of clustered together. But there are definitely independent publishers around the country. And I think if you are really interested in working for one of the big publishers, but, you know, moving to New York City doesn't sound like it's for you or it seems like, um, you know, it'd be too much at first. I think agencies are a really great way to learn more about the business and to make those contacts. Um, And there are agencies all over the country. Um, You know, there, if you wanted to live in Colorado, there are ones in Colorado, there are ones in Washington, um, because, and, and, you know, some of them are small. But I think working with agents is great because they have all those contacts with the editors. They're really in the business. They're talking about the trends. They're talking to the editors. They're going to the conventions. And that that can be, you know, between between agents and the independent publishers, I think that's kind of a way if you want to be involved, but you New York City is not for you, that that's a good way to do it. Well, I don't know necessarily if New York City is not for me. I just always had these like nightmares about it. Like I would just get there and then everybody would start pointing and laughing at me. Uh, I'm not <laughs> no, I would say I'm, New Yorkers are a little bit nicer than their reputation makes them out to be. <laughs> I'm just not a very stylish person. Like I just wear like crappy clothes all the time. I just feel like you know, straw hats. New York <laughs> will actually grow on you. I went on vacation and I was at the dog park and this woman came and sat down next to me and she goes, are you from New York City? And I was like, yes, why? And she was like, because no one around here dresses like that to go to the dog park. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of sneaks up on you slowly. I'm I'm from Massachusetts, but I seem to have been, you know, New Yorkified in my time there. Yeah, it's still like a dream of mine to go there and maybe find some of the publishers at least and go, hey, that's where uh, Harper's uh, <laughs> Harper Voyager's office is. Mm-hmm. Hey, there it is. And then I won't go in there. <laughs> I'll run away. There's a strange man in the building. Call security. Bring a straw hat. What uh, websites do you keep tabs on to kind of stay informed for your job? You know, so it took me a really long time to get a Twitter account because I don't like having public social media. I think, you know, it's hard enough doing a podcast where what I say will be on the internet forever. Uh, so, but, but when I got a Twitter account, it was like this magical world opened up and all of a sudden I was completely up on all of the industry gossip because I used to come into work and people would be like, Oh, like, did you hear about what happened at this convention? And I'm like, no, what happened? But now I'm like watching it in real time. So I think, you know, if, if people are interested in, in seeing what's going on, following people who work in the industry on Twitter is a great way to do it because they're always talking about, you know, even agents, editors, authors, Everybody's always talking about what's going on and what they're seeing. I also really love Chuck Wendig's blog. I think that he has a fantastically profane way of uh, talking about, you know, issues that are that are going on and, and news in the world and, and writing advice. Um, so I would say kind of between him and Twitter, that that's my oh, and, and publishers marketplace, but I think that may have a paywall. We're usually pretty oh. profane on this show, actually, but we're trying, <laughs> we're trying to be nice today. 
<laughs> a lot of people hate this question, and you may hate it too, but where do you see the industry going in five to ten years? And uh, are there any like emerging technologies that you're excited about when it comes to, to, to books and stuff? Well, I think the most important thing about where is the industry going is that it's not going to die. I know when I started working in publishing, there were all these articles coming about uh, the doom of publishing and the end is near and then, you know, there will be no more books. Um, and that we really haven't seen that, which is good. So first, publishing will still be around. Second of all, you know, I think there are kind of trends to being able, well, trends to being able to hit trends faster. I think we're all working on being more efficient and more to the market. And so I think, you know, you're going to start seeing publishers trying to get, I hesitate to say getting books out there faster because that makes it sound like we're going to be sacrificing quality. But I think, you know, just kind of being more efficient so that, you know, if a trend does come up, we'll be able to jump on it. Like right now, I think, you know, we're seeing, I think we've been seeing horror rising. I think we've been seeing science fiction rising, kind of YA crossover books with things like The Hunger Games and, and Divergent. And so I think as we kind of start catching on to those trends, everything is speeding up. And I think that publishing is going to start speeding up to kind of to kind of go along with it. On the technology front, I have no idea what we're going to do with it, but have you guys heard about like interactive ebooks and they're kind of these like scavenger hunts that you can do on your phone that are books at the same time? I don't think anybody quite knows what to do with that yet, but I think if somebody hits on a good idea, that could be really neat. Just like the more people reading, the better and and a lot of people are reading on their phones, so if we can take advantage of that, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think uh, I'm kind of an oracle of publishing in a way, so anybody that wants publishing advice, they always ask me because I know what the next big thing is. And um, one thing that I see becoming bigger and bigger, and it's already pretty big, but crowdfunding stuff. Is there mm -hmm. is there any is there any way that major publishers can get get more involved in crowdfunding uh, certain things? Like if they're if they're not sure uh, about a certain project, they can crowdfund it and then see like, okay, readers are interested in this. And since publishers have more money than a small publisher or, or a single person, they could actually put more money behind an idea if they wanted to. Is there any kind of talk about anything like that at all? You know, not that I've heard, but I mean, I imagine something like that would be like a legal disaster. Um, and so the legal department would hate me for saying that, but I think that could be cool because I know, um, you know, there has been success for people when they've crowdfunded, uh, for self-publishing. And I know that sometimes after they self-publish it, that it, then it gets picked up by a traditional publisher. Um, but I've never heard of any traditional publisher crowdfunding at the start. So I would have to have a very long conversation with Beth and legal, but I imagine, I imagine there are things you could do there. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not a whole, like a whole book or whatever the case may be, but uh, just certain things. Like I think there's a lot that can still be kind of tinkered with as far as crowd crowdfunding things. And, and it definitely takes care of the case of will this sell or not? Because if you're, if you're putting out something that people are actually putting their money towards that they want to see, then you, you already know, okay, mm -hmm. people, people want this thing. But I, I do see a lot of small publishers or indie publishers doing this. I don't know the legal ramifications of something like that. So I just have ideas. 
<laughs> I know pre-ordering has a factor into the success of a book as well. Would you say that, Rebecca? Yeah, I think pre-orders can be important, especially, I mean, if you want to be hitting, you know, some of the, the bestseller lists, pre-orders are really important. And I think, you know, it is something that publishers kind of look at, like, especially for me, like I know when I'm, I'm growing authors, I, I kind of like to look ahead and see, um, you know, how pre-order numbers have grown as we've gone through a series, um, because I think that can be an interesting indication of, of what we're doing that's working or what we're doing that's not working. But definitely, like I said, I think I think there are definitely books out there that are slow burners where, you know, they might not have the highest pre-order numbers. They might not have the highest numbers out the gate, but they just kind of like sell and sell and sell slowly over time. And then one day you might hit like that perfect promotion where like everything comes together and the stars align and you sell like a bajillion copies. And so I think I think pre-orders are important and can be really good. But there's there's also that second type of book that can work really well also. And I know there have been a, a number of um, self-published authors who kind of have that uh, Hugh Howie dream of writing that self-published hit that just seems to pick up steam and eventually gets picked up by a major publisher. Um, it's kind of the, the pipe dream of, I think, uh, a few self-published authors out there to put something out there and then be picked up by, by somebody. How in tune would you say big publishers are with independent authors who are getting huge sales. Do you keep pretty close tabs on things like that? Yeah, I think it is something that publishers do keep an eye out for. And I, I do think that that relationship can be really interesting with, you know, a, a self-published author who's found a lot of success um, and finds themselves looking for a traditional deal because there's a lot of back and forth then about what the publisher is bringing to the table um, and what you know, what that relationship is going to be like, because they have found success on their own. So I think it's really important to have those conversations when you do pick up a book about what expectations are and, and what we're going to be doing for them, which hopefully, you know, they'll think is, is great and, and has value. But I would say definitely, like for people who are out there in self-publishing, like we are, we are keeping tabs on it. We are watching, you know, who's rising to the top and who's doing stuff that seems interesting. They are watching. <laughs> I know it sounds <laughs> ominous when you put it that way. <laughs> And do you kind of keep tabs on kind of like Amazon bestseller lists and things like that or New York Times bestseller lists? Where, where do you go to to see what's selling? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say I look at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the Times lists. I like to look at what bloggers are talking about. I, like, I really do, like I said, when I look at those like best of the year lists, I think that's always really fascinating. You know, kind of just just all over the place. I like to I like to hear from a wide variety of voices about what people are excited about. Does your best of the year list often match up with your own personal taste or do you, are you always like, wow, really? <laughs> That's the best of the year. I sometimes am more like, wow, really? I try to I try to contain my skepticism and and assume that, you know, well, I don't like to say that I assume that they only read the first 10 pages. Sometimes I assume that. Sometimes I assume that maybe they're seeing something that I just didn't see, you know, because everybody does have different tastes. So you mentioned that the Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison is uh, one of your new your new favorites. What about that book really appealed to you as a reader? I really liked that one because it it has that element of kind of Game of Thrones that everybody has been talking about. You know, we have these like really complicated politics going on, but at the heart of it was this character Maya, who's just. just so likable and he's trying to do the right thing and he's trying to be a good emperor he's he's kind of like a um, a goblin who's basically or a half goblin who's been thrust onto the throne of of this elvish empire and he's trying to do the right thing but everything is so hard for him but he's still so nice and so it was just you really were rooting for him 
the whole time and you wanted to see him succeed and uh, you wanted you know people to support him. And so for me, it was it was that kind of emotional connection to a character in the midst of all this politics, which is not I don't normally go for the books with the intense politics because I think it's really hard to follow who's who. Um, but for this one, like it was such a focus on this just lovely main character that I couldn't put it down. I had to find out how it ended. So you would say that typically a strong character will will override any other elements of a story, like the plot. Maybe maybe isn't your usual plot, or the setting doesn't appeal to you as much. Like if there's strong characters, that's always going to trump everything else. Yeah, exactly. Because for this for this book, I mean, it even has steampunk elements, which I don't always go for. It, it's kind of minor. They have you know airships and things, but but for me, that character driven stories are really where it's at. And I would qualify that too by saying, you know, I said how likable the protagonist was in The Goblin Emperor, but I don't even think, I don't think protagonists have to be likable. I think that you could just as easily have a really compelling, interesting story with like a horrible, nasty character. You know, as long as there's something in there that grabs you about, you know, the the people in this world the author has created, I think that's the most important thing. Well, I mean, Game of Thrones is full of horrible, nasty people and people people seem to... (laughs) Exactly, exactly. More nasty, horrible people. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) And what would you say is the most difficult, challenging part of being an assistant editor with Harper Voyager? Well, I hate to go for the obvious, but definitely finding the time to do it all is tough, you know, because you're balancing, you know, as, as an assistant editor, you're, you're helping out, I help out two other editors, and they probably have anywhere from 15 to 20 books in a year each. And then I have my own list of 15 to 20 books. So it's a lot of moving parts um, and a lot of, you know, communicating with lots of authors. And at the same time, you also have to get, you know, your own submission reading done. You have to do your own editing. So it's definitely something, you know, I, I would say for people who are starting out, you do become more efficient as you go. Getting a manuscript ready to send to production used to take me an hour, and now it takes me 10 minutes. So, you know, as you become more efficient, you have more time. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, like, sneaking in my reading on the subway or, you know, reading on my phone while I walk the dog. And, and you know, so finding, finding the time is tough. Well, one of the perks is, you know, you get to have lunch with other people in the business and talk about cool stuff. I mean, I don't, I eat lunch by myself, so <laughs> I don't get to talk about anything cool. Yeah, I would say normally lunch is, is me and a manuscript, but uh, oh. it, it's it's a huge advantage to be able, and it's one of the big pluses of the job is, is working with all these people who are so passionate about the books that they work with and, and the authors and the stories and, and, you know, are happy to talk nerd things all day. It's great. What's an example of a nerd thing you talk about that maybe isn't book related? Hmm. Or is it always like book, 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 book? No, <laughs> we talk about we talk about TV a lot. I'm trying to think if there's like a like a TV show. I mean, we often compare nerd TV shows. So like one person will be saying that they're watching Once Upon a Time, and somebody else will be saying that they're watching, you know, like the new Atlantis TV show or something. And then we compare the merits of the different shows and um, kind of dissect them like we would a, a manuscript submission for for what's working and what's not working. Yeah, I just finished a really good fantasy TV show called House of Cards. That's, really, <laughs> that's a really good show. <laughs> the latest season. You probably don't even have time to watch any TV or anything, but are there any uh, genre shows that you're keeping an eye on, Rebecca? Um, well, I just started watching Battlestar Galactica, which I know is an old one, but I've been watching that religiously. Daredevil season two or anything like that? Are you watching the, you got the Netflix? You know, I haven't been so big into the Netflix originals. They're a little bit too scary for me. Like I watched oh, okay. the first episode of Jessica Jones, and it was really cool. 
But then that, that girl, she like murders her parents and she turns to the TV screen. And I forget what she says, but I was like tucked up into a ball on the couch, like holding the dog as tightly as I could. I was like, oh my God, way too much for me. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty intense. I was like, whoa, hold on a second. <laughs> this is Marvel, Marvel, right? What the hell happened? WTF. Exactly. Well, Rebecca Lukash, for folks who want to keep up with you on social media, you're on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter. You can find me at, at Rebecca Lukash. And then HarperVoyager.com is maybe where folks can keep a tab on kind of the titles that you have coming down. Or uh, Yeah, I think we are actually HarperVoyagerBooks.com. But, okay. uh, but yeah, yeah, you can find us there and uh, even through the HarperCollins website. We are trying to do more fun things with our blog, so you'll see some insider reports and, and posts from authors going up there. Yeah, well, you had a blog post up there fairly recently. I did, wow. yes. Like, well, we get to Google the weirdest things uh, while we <laughs> while we research things. Like, I think the the weirdest one I ever got to, which which wasn't recent, so I didn't put it in that blog post, but was how to deal with a runaway camel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you learn all kinds of strange things as you edit. Excellent. Well, Rebecca Lukash, uh, I knew there was a reason we brought you on the show is because you were full of enlightening. Um, information about editing and the publishing industry and we do thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and expertise with us and our listeners and I'm really looking forward to getting this episode out so folks can check it out but uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to chat with us we definitely appreciate it yeah thanks again this was fun you can find us online at facebook.com slash the grim tidings podcast or on twitter at grimdarkfiction Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. I don't want to do podcasting.